Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Janelli, and I'm hashtag Team Chromium. I'm Andrew Weissel, and I am hashtag Team Piru. I'm Kerry Thomas, and I'm hashtag Team Ugin off plane. I'm gonna get you. Oh, he's not even on the plane. How can we? We can't have an Elder Dragon War like this. Come on. He's Switzerland. <laughs> Ooh. Which is actually a, a thing people should probably stop saying, because if you look into what Switzerland actually did during World War II, they are pretty terrible. Yeah, that's what that's where the uh came from. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, let's start with Vorthos news. So this week we have a couple things to talk about, a bit of a smattering here and there. So the first thing is the Vivian Reed Planeswalker page on the Mothership finally went up. So if you want to learn a little bit more about this new mono-green character, go ahead and check it out. She seems pretty interesting. She has the potential to be a very interesting antagonist or a reluctant ally with the main heroes with her vendetta against civilization. We learned that her home plane had been destroyed by Nicol Bolas, which we already knew, but that he had come to destroy the civilization that had been encroaching on her forest to plunder their secrets of technology. And the civilization people and the forest people came together to combine their magics and their tech to create the arc bow, which uh, before she had a chance to use on Bolas, she ascended and left the plane. Yeah, taking her people's only chance of defeating Bolas with her. Good going, Vivian. It's okay, because... They're setting her up with the whole, I'm going to get revenge on civilization for the awful things they do to nature. We don't have a mono-green villain in Magic. If you look through every legendary creature and every planeswalker, there is a single mono-green villain, Vorenklex, who hasn't actually appeared in any Magic story anywhere. 25 years and we finally get a monogreen, potentially get a monogreen villain. We'll see where Vivian's story goes, because I agree she can potentially be an ally against Bolas, at least temporarily. This sets up a lot of potential cool future things for her as a character, which we will see one day. I should also note that this is preview week, but we record the week before, so we have literally not seen anything. I'm sorry if you came here for the deep lore on whatever awesome commander cards were spoiled today. We'll talk about those next week. We also had a very good weekly MTG this week. That's the Twitch-streamed magic show every Thursday at, is it 2 p.m. Pacific time? Yep, 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern. It's 5 Eastern for all of us, yeah. East Coast, best coast. (laughs) Don't tell the West Coast that. Our pizza's better. (laughs) It is. It really is. So this weekly MTG is essential for anyone listening to this podcast. I recommend you go listen to it or watch it. They have a podcast now. Like, an official podcast alongside of it. You don't really need to watch it because they didn't show any images or anything. But it was a nice hour-long discussion. They do dunk on Tempest-era art direction. So that's partially doing my job for me because Tempest block art was a mess. That's on a list of Andrew rants for future space in an episode whenever we have time to talk about it. I got a big old rant about Tempest block. 
So I think it was a really useful discussion. There's been a lot of confusion on just what's going on with the franchise team, and I think even we were confused on how things were going. And for three super invested Vorthos to have no idea what's going on with the story, that's, you know, not, not a great example of communication with the fan base. But this was excellent. So what we learned essentially is that the franchise team didn't take over from the R&D creative team, which is now called the world building team. Everyone is very careful to call them the world building team. The franchise team integrated with the world building team. So the world building team, that's Jenna Helen, Doug Bear, James Wyatt, all those people that we've known for a while. They're still developing essentially the outline of the story in conjunction with the franchise team people like Nick Kelman. And what they do is they meet several times a week, they coordinate, and once the bare bones story has been come up with, essentially the plot outline, Nick then goes and takes that to coordinate with the author to create the story that we eventually get and we eventually see. So no one has been cut out of the process, probably a good way to put it. I know that was a concern for a lot of people. And the world building team is still heavily involved in bringing you the narrative we've come to enjoy. They just no longer have to spend their nights and weekends writing it. They also talked about the switch over to having outside writers working on Magic Story, which they explained was a decision that had been made before the franchise team even existed. That was something that was in the thoughts of the people working on Magic Story and the company before this team even existed, and a thought that only got to manifest once this team existed and had the budget for it and the time to work on it like that. So we're seeing the evolution of where they wanted the production side of Magic Story to go anyway. It just happened to occur during a time where they were getting a new team and where some familiar faces in the department were leaving Wizards for other jobs at other companies. Typical for Wizards of the Coasts that the optics were way worse than... The truth of it. The reality of what was going on behind the scenes. It was nice to get a lot of information about how this whole setup came to be and who else is on the team. There's a lot of familiar magic artist names. Like Matt Cavada, who drew the Limb Duel card. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not the most important detail about Matt, but sure. Um, <laughs> Matt illustrated a lot of magic cards, worked... I believe he worked in caps for a bit on the brand side of things. He was also the forward-facing guy when it came to story and flavor for a long time, too. He wrote Savor the Flavor. Was it Savor the Flavor Taste yet? the Magic. Taste the Magic. There we it go. It was the precursor to Doug's Savor the Flavor. One of my favorite Orthos articles the Mothership ever published was an interview that Matt did with Pete Venner's. Matt introduced the term Vorthos to the world. Snack time with Vorthos. If you knew our friends at the Snack Time cast, which is now sadly no more, turning into a new podcast, which I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, they took their name from that article. Get to the focal point. Get to the focal point. Yeah, thank you. I know there was a lot of worry that Dan and Nick were kind of newbies to Wizards of the Coast and weren't going to fit in with everyone who had been there forever already. 
because we also didn't know how big this team was. And it's a lot bigger than I thought. Originally, all we knew was that it was Jeremy, Nick, and Dan, but there's a lot of other people. So we also learned that Vivian Reed is getting her own three-parter after M19 concludes, either immediately after or after a short break, written by Cassandra Kaw, who is known for Eldritch Horror novels, which is very interesting. Yeah, I'm interested to see if that's the angle she takes with it, because that's actually something we haven't really seen with Planeswalkers. But they do kind of fit the MO of Cosmic Horror, where most people on most planes don't even know that a multiverse exists. And a planeswalker can come in with an agenda all to their own or in service of another world, muddle things up, and run away, and people in the world are just left flabbergasted because they have no idea what the hell just happened. It really taps into, I think, the core of those kinds of cosmic horror stories where the scope of agency and the scope of impact are at a huge differential between the everyday people and whatever horror, or in this case maybe Planeswalker, is impacting their lives. So if that's the angle that they take, that's really cool, because Magic's never really done that with Planeswalkers before. Merit Lage got thrown around back during the Ice Age times as that kind of influence. Notably, Merit Lage was confused with a planeswalker, as noted in The Eternal Ice. She was a legit Eldritch Horror paired with planeswalkers, because essentially, that's what they are. And then obviously the Eldrazi tapped into this space completely and intentionally. It'll be interesting if they cast Bolas in that kind of light, because I think that functions a lot how he moves also, in these kind of shadowy, what-the-hell-is-going-on thing. The live-tweet response from her to me posting the announcement as I was watching the stream is all caps, Hey guys, guess who got to write for her favorite franchise growing up? And then her reply tweet is, One of my earliest memories was of playing uh, Magic the Gathering very badly. And devouring all the novels, good or bad. So this is ridiculously exciting. Child me is screaming. And Kate Elliott has welcomed her in replies. Jay, that's like you. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> bad at magic and I devour all the novels. <laughs> that is literally my bio. The other thing we learned is that in the vein of giving authors room to breathe, that originally the, I'm going to call them collectively the creative team, but the franchise team and the world building team, had a different frame in mind for Chronicles of Bolas. When Kate Elliott came on board, she worked with them and developed this new Tarkir frame story, which is honestly, it didn't hook me at first, but now that Atarka has been introduced and there's obviously more going on behind the scenes, I think it was a really good decision. No, definitely. What's neat is that one of the things Kate has prided herself in as an author and is kind of known for is her relationships between women in her stories. The two twins that are in the frame story were kind of Kate's idea to both mirror the Bolas and Ugin twin relationship and add something that she is very good at into the story. Part of the compelling narrative of the frame story is 
their relationship and how it's been mirroring Bolas and Ugin. It's hard to understand a writing process if you don't write, but you need lots of ideas and allowing the authors who are going to be writing the stories to be able to provide good ideas is important to making this whole system work. This is no different than ideas coming from within the world building or the franchise team as well. Obviously, it's like up to Nick to decide where some directions go, so he's kind of a guiding force there. I think the worry was that Nick was going to like hand a story to an author, take his hands off and say, go buck wild on it, do whatever you want which isn't how these things are done or are ever done in any company. Well, some, I guess some badly run companies might do it that way. That there's so much dialogue between all the people still working on the story is really good to hear and hopefully quells some of the... Concerns people Confusion yeah. and concerns, yeah, that people had about Magic Story going forward. Also in the news, we had Magic the Gathering Arena update... That happened this week, I believe. Technically this week. It was supposed to happen last week, but it happened this week. Um, we got a whole bunch of exclusive cards that are mostly shown in the tutorial stages. You can look at those on the Scryfall page. Andrew, you had something to say about one of them. Yeah, there's a crab. Crab. Crab, crab, crab. A crab and a skull. Crab and a skull, which is not uncommon for hermit. I mean, it's uncommon for hermit crabs, but... So hermit crabs have co-evolved with snails so that they don't have a well-protected backside. They have kind of a long spiral-shaped back end that can slip into snail shells. It's good for the crabs because they don't waste metabolic energy growing shells and growing that back end a lot because they can just parasitically take snail shells as snails die and get eaten and whatnot. But what happens is that things like garbage and bones and refuse and whatever in the ocean can also provide anchoring shells for them. And skulls are absolutely a thing that have a cavity inside that a hermit crab can shove its butt into. Still not as creepy as the discarded doll heads that are covered with moss. That's going to be one of the scariest things I've ever seen. But not only is this hermit crab in a skull, but the skull still has its pirate hat on. So it's just this pirate skull with its hermit crab coming out of it. It's like exactly the kind of fun thing... That fits Ixalan, and it's like, why isn't this a card? In addition to that, the profile pages feature art that not a lot of people have seen before. They've seen it on the packaging for the Planeswalker decks, but they are specifically that packaging art just imported to MTG Arena. They have a little blurb below them, but the art is by Chris Rallis. We're going to be getting more of them. Some of them weren't part of Planeswalker decks, but you can still choose them as a profile avatar. So they just use whatever the cart art they had around was. But when you click on those, it will give you a unique voice line in addition to when you play them in-game. I will have the voice lines hosted up on my site pretty soon. It's more of getting them all collected over this upcoming weekend. But the best one that I've heard so far is Jace has one that goes just simply, I will find you, Veraska, and not in like an intimidating way and I'll longing way so i'm excited about why are you laughing it's like really heartfelt because they recounted it 
in such a uh, menacing way. <laughs> yeah. If that came out two years ago, that sounds like he's hunting Veraska. It's not... Liam Neeson? Yeah, exactly. The campaigns have a lot of miscellaneous other art. There is, I think, the tutorial campaign uses, like, packaging art that was from M19. Yeah, M19. Throughout there, we have a little bit of new Vivian Reed art that I posted on Twitter. Nothing too exciting. It's just nice to have new resources and new art that not a lot of people are exposed to because it's isolated to a cardboard box that 90% of people are just going to throw out anyways. They did mention in Weekly MTG that they commissioned new art for these Vivian stories, so my guess is we're going to see some more Vivian art in the future. Yeah, I'm excited for it. It's time for listener questions. We have a couple today. They're all relatively quick. Let's start with the first one, which is, which is the more powerful weapon, the Black Blade or Godsend? And that's from at Time Elemental on Twitter. That is a really, really easy question. The answer is the Black Blade, unless you're a god. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know about that. Um, Godsend, maybe even not even then. Because yeah. Godsend was designed for one very specific purpose, and that's to kill gods, and it can cut things out of Nyx. But otherwise, it's essentially a regular sword. Realistically, I think the, the more contentious question would be, what's more powerful? And I, I had this discussion with our friend Michelle from the Lorgoifs, is whether the Black Blade or the Chain Veil is more powerful. And that's a good question. I feel like most MTG weapons are just very very flexible to what the story needs are which is this is true how you have good story elements is like you have them fill whatever the need is for the story my instinct would be chain veil stronger just because we kind of like have had it built up for 10 years there has to be something good in there besides onaki spirits so what i would say about the black blade because i did talk about what godsend is intended to do the black blade absorbs the soul or essence of whatever it cuts even if it's a nick and strengthens the wielder. You know, if the Black Blade hadn't absorbed, like, an Elder Dragon, and even now an Elder Demon, it might just be, you know, more like a regular sword, but uh, it has absorbed a lot of power over the years. So our next question is, any insight into the significance of the Hellkite modifier on MTG dragons? Can't divine any particular region or theme, so I'm thinking it's similar to the use of Sylvan in green. And that's from Vault the Geth Lord, which is a name I like, at Keith Egan. I looked this up and I found an Ask Wizards from years ago from Brady Dommermuth. The answer is Hellkite is simply a word we use for really powerful, really angry dragons. There's no hard rule for what qualifies a dragon to be a Hellkite, although so far all of them are either 6-6 or cost 7 or more to play. Now that was true at the time, but it's not entirely true now. On Alara, specifically Jund, the Hellkite seems like it might be in an actual breed of dragon there, because we have Hellkite Hatchling. Whether or not that is just because it's a very angry, very powerful Hatchling, or because it's a specific breed, it's not really clear. In the Alara Unbroken novel, Sarkon Val implies a Hellkite is a very ancient kind of dragon. He asks if Nicobolus is older even than a Hellkite. So it's not entirely clear. I believe Andrew answered partly online. If, if you like what Archangel is used for, you'll like what Hellkite is used for. It's essentially to denote a very powerful kind of dragon that's not necessarily 
a specific breed. It also saves people the hassle of writing dragon a billion times across card names. Like, you just get to diversify the titles, especially. Absolutely. So, our last question for this week is, as a visually impaired player, how could wizards create more disabled characters in the lore or as cards? How would the various cultures around the plains perceive disability? And that's from Visionless at Xenoblader Tuco on Twitter. Let's talk about two disabled characters I can think of off the top of my head. The first is obviously Doretti, who is one of my favorite characters ever. Doretti lost his legs in the explosion that ignited his spark and built himself a conveyance. I don't want to call it a wheelchair because it's got like cogs instead of wheels and it's way, way more than a wheelchair is. But he built himself his own cogwork conveyance to highlight his abilities as an artificer. There's a very, very minor character in the Time Spiral novels simply named Target, who was blinded by a cruel Keldon warlord that Radha takes under her wing. They go into the icy north of Parma to recover an ice giant heart. She uses it to have Target learn a kind of ice magic that essentially makes up for his lack of vision because he can sense the warmth in the air, and so he can sense like people's body heats in the cold field around the ice heart. But the real answer is to just do it. Like, there doesn't have to be, you know, Doretti losing his legs was an ability to show off that he's not just a a handsome goblin, but that he has the ability to create this amazing cogwork conveyance and show it in his artwork and differentiate him from, like, Tezzeret or other artificers. I think not to be the Blizzard fan person of the cast like I always talk about Overwatch, but Overwatch has done a very above average job at having disability representation. A lot of it is through the use of prosthetics, but a lot of it is still in the game, and it's just seeing them go full force on that with their release roster for that game was especially inspiring, and I hope that Wizards, like Wizards doesn't get to introduce full new rosters of characters very often, but I think that they can, in the same way that they manage the balancing out the gender imbalance that had been created by about seven or eight years of story post-mending, as far as Planeswalker card representation, they can do similar with disabilities and um, representing disabled characters within the cards. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be an excuse to get like a, a gimmicky magic involved. Yes. Like Doretti and his artifice showing off his, you know, his special conveyance. It can just be a part of who the character is. It doesn't have to be compensated for, and it doesn't have to be an empowering thing. It can just be a thing that is part of the character. Right. It doesn't have to be like the daredevil syndrome where losing one sense has them have superpowers in in other ways. It can just be something that's a part of a character and something like regular human beings have to deal with. Most people, even with disabilities, they can do everything everyone else can do. I would hate for it to be used only when there's some cool special power that goes along with it to make up for it. 
So let's move on and talk about Magic Story Chronicle of Bolas Blood and Fire. So this one is very cool because we get essentially the what I hope is the beginnings of the Elder Dragon War and not the entirety of the Elder Dragon War, but we'll have to see. So the frame story is heating up as they go out into the night and Naiva sees a golden flash and something like a large figure blotting out the stars. And she can't quite tell what it is. And they also note, uh, notice Atarka coming, and these are all like Atarka brood dragons. So she comes to essentially round up the new broodlings. And what's interesting with that golden flash and what happens later, someone mentioned to me that the golden flash is how Nicol Bolas's planeswalking has been described in the past. We're thinking maybe Bolas makes his big entry into the story about him. And we have more reasons to think that, which we'll get into in just a second. But Nick Kelman on the Weekly MTG also hinted that Bolas was lurking behind the scenes of the frame story. Naiva also ends up getting paired with Feck as uh, they begin to set out. And it's interesting because we learn Feck was formerly a Colagan or a Mardu clan member. That is interesting because this little group now has three former members of the human Khans clans. So they now have a Mardu, a Jeskai, and of course Temur. So I wonder if they're going somewhere with that. It was interesting because Feck gives his backstory. He left the Kolagon because... He was the only one willing to speak truth, and normally those kinds of people get killed. And after he hurt his leg, kind of fell behind and got left behind, which is also pirate code. <laughs> so he's another individual who wants to keep the past before the Dragon Lords took over the clans alive, which, like Taijin and Yasova, is kind of they're kind of forming a super group here <laughs> not not yet as good as the traveling wilburys they've got a, a couple more clans to pick members from before they get that kind of star power but it's pretty good so atarka ends up discovering them because the dead dragon that they left behind last time led her to them and she ends up taking them all hostage and demanding they explain so Yasova explains that the Ojitai dragon turned on her brood dragon, but that they killed the Ojutai dragon in vengeance for that slight. <laughs> and so Atarka allows them to have Taijin, who she recognizes as an outsider, tell her a story that will please her while she eats the Ojutai dragon. There's a good lesson in this moment that Yasova teaches us, which is that if you have to lie to save your ass, lie to someone too dumb to know the difference. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so Tai Jin begins to tell a story, but as he tells the story, he seems, I'm going to use the word, ensorcelled. And the story he begins to tell is very, very clearly a nickel bolus propaganda piece. And it probably saves his life. He was going to tell the story about Shu Yun and the end of the Jeskai, 
which is probably not a great story to tell a dragon lord if you're going <laughs> to venerate your former master. Yeah. In the Nicobolus tainted flashback, we learn that Nicobolus ruled his people justly and fairly, as he does, and that Vivectus's brood attacked his outlying territory, so Nicobolus was forced to respond and take his dragon killers to the edge of his territory, where Vivectus's brood had essentially kicked out Palladium Moors, so you know they have to be trouble if they can make Palladia move out of the way and find a new hunting range. His army takes down these dragons, except for one who manages to get away to alert Vivectus of this, not treachery, but of this, of this oh, it's killing. treachery. Yeah, all right. It's, tra- it's dragons killing dragons. That's fair. That's fair. But I, I do like that this paid off what we predicted, which was that Bolas would use the dragon killer's weapons to make up for his smaller stature and go after other dragons. It feels really good as a reader to pick up on foreshadowing like that. It feels really good as a reader to know that an author put stuff like that in a story and that it was successful in foreshadowing what it was supposed to foreshadow. Kate Elliott is killing it with this story. Yeah, I do want to cut back in just one more thing that they mentioned in Weekly MTG was that they are absolutely interested in bringing authors back for second, third, fourth, whatever extra stories they want to bring authors back for. So I'm going to say it now, dear Nick Kelman, if you're listening, someday, please give Kate Elliott more work. With that one dragon escaping, Bullis spurs his army on to follow. He doesn't want the message getting back to Vivictus, but by the time they catch up in this very mountainous region, it's too late, and Vivictus and his three biggest dragons are waiting for them. Not just dragons, brothers. These are other elder dragons. Elder dragons that we've never heard of before. This was another thing we predicted that got to manifest in a story. Unfortunately, these are elder dragons you don't want to get any more attached to than Moravia Sol, <laughs> because one of them gets taken down very quickly. The other three, including Vivictus, very, very quickly rout Bolus's army, and they're forced to flee into this, was it like a canyon, a crevasse, something like that? They're forced to retreat and have this kind of desperate last stand where they manage to kill a second one. Bolus, using his mind magic, turns the third newly named dragon against Vivictus, their leader, then flees while the two are distracted in their fight. We know who the winner is because Vivictus appears again later and is one of the survivors of the war. It was a neat turn. Bolus basically kills his remaining army because either they learned that Elder Dragon blood strengthens them, which is not something... Not just strengthens them, but being coated in the blood of an elder dragon protected them from dragon fire, which is both classically and practically in this story is a dragon's greatest weapon. Bolus, as I mentioned, basically kills what's left of his army because they have learned that and they've also learned there are bigger, stronger dragons than Nicol Bolas out there, which he can't allow them to bring back to his people. On his way back to his empire, 
He essentially seeds the sparks of the Elder Dragon War. He stops by Palladium Moors and lets her know just how vulnerable Vivectus is with all his fellow bullies dead. He stops by and manipulates even Arcades by whispering into his mind that if Arcades doesn't get involved in the conflict that he's spreading, that Arcades will be attacked by one of these other Elder Dragons who takes the initiative when he does not. So we learn that the Elder Dragon War was essentially sparked by Bolas after doing all of this by manipulating the essentially the survivors, goading them into attacking one another. Like I've said before, this was something we had predicted might happen. That I love it. Bolas discovering this power of mental manipulation starts to turn his cousins and brothers and sisters against each other. And there was a great, fantastic part where he wonders why it didn't work so well on Ugin. Part of it, I think, is connected to how similar their mindscapes were when Jace looked at them. Back in Hour of Devastation, when Jace tries to read Bolas's mind, it's described as this kind of sphere of smooth, impenetrable crystal that he can't get into until Bolas willingly opens it up to him. And then, as Jace's mind is getting destroyed and he gets whisked away to Ixalan, he has a faint memory of Ugin's mind being the same way. Jace tries to prod his mind back on Zendikar when they meet at the Eye of Ugin. Not only might it be a kind of twin connection, but they are the two elder dragons that have the most powerful and perceptive minds and mental abilities. Bolas talks about how easy it was to manipulate the Vevictus brood elders and Palladia Moors because they're big dumb dragons. Ugin and Bolas are perfect foils for each other. They match each other's moves exactly. They know everything about each other. It's how their battle during Fate Reforged was described as them just trading equal blows, never able to get an advantage over each other. That kind of um, Sherlock Holmes-Moriarty relationship where each of them are planning 12 moves ahead of the other one, but are also accounting for all the 12 moves the other is planning, and it's just unstoppable force, immovable object kind of stuff. And that's going to be super important when these two characters eventually meet again. It's also probably why Ugin picked up on those whispers of treachery in that story. Right, because they're both the good telepath planeswalkers. They're a little too in sync to be able to manipulate one another like that. Twin power! <laughs> so then at the end, there's a speech about, well, there's a little bit of a monologue from whoever is telling the story, <clears throat> Nicol Bolas, that there should be one law, one law for humans and one law for dragons, but it's clear that what Bolas means by it is that the law of betrayal for humans should be the same as the law for dragons. And we should note, we only mentioned Palladia, Vivictus, and Arcades, but there are conflicts brewing across the globe during this story. It wasn't just Palladia, Vivictus, and Arcades. What's good to note is that there were dragons everywhere. This is a war. This isn't elder dragon family squabbles, not family feud. 
This is all-out war across the oceans. Humans are rising to the occasion to learn dragon magic. I know, Jay, you had mentioned that maybe this is when the Numina started learning their super powerful wizardry and then would later usurp primeval dragons. It's here. This is the first actual fiction of the Elder Dragon War. This is this is it. It's very exciting. 25 years. Finally. So let's wrap up the frame story and then we'll talk a little bit about what this is going to mean. Atarka takes that one law statement to mean the one law is that Atarka gets to eat. Please. <laughs> but she she liked the story and so she allows them to keep Taijin. Yasova talks to Taijin afterwards and Taijin mentioned like Andrew said that he had meant to tell the story of the Confall, but something influenced him. And Yasova begins to grow worried that the whispers they received from the Windfolk maybe weren't from Ugin at all, and so they try and pick up the pace to Ugin's grave. Let's talk about this story. Do you think this was the extent of the Elder Dragon War, and that the next story is going to be something else? Not at all. Next story's got to be like the full-blown Elder Dragon War, right? Because this is kind of like the sparks, the beginning. I'm interested in what it escalates into, because I honestly can't imagine what the scale will be, and only... Arcades and Bolas kind of have human pawns to, well, Bolas not so many anymore, but they only have human pawns to fight with. So it's mostly going to be dragon on dragon. So who was influencing Taijin? I mean, pretty obviously. It was Bolas, right? Are we all in agreement? Yeah, it seems that way. What's necessary for the story to go forward, it is not my favorite thing because... Bolas saw him where he laid as far as Ugin's body, which is a little bit difficult explaining if he's just like coming back to Tarkir and he's like, yeah, um, that's where I killed Ugin. That big pile of hedrons, pile of rocks. Um, I'm just going to ignore that. Yeah. Yeah. He has been to Zendikar before. So at some point in his life, whether Zendikar was before or after, he had to connect the dots. (laughs) It's not an impossibility if he saw the tomb the issue with there being a planeswalker on tarkir between fate reforged and cons or dragons of tarkir is because it fundamentally alters the past of the multiverse like one of the things they insisted is that there were no planeswalkers between now and then or at least none that would affect the story but having bolus there potentially has him learn new information that would have had him act differently between the two timelines. And we know it's because of the way the timey-wimey stuff works, it's got to play out exactly the same, because whether you're Khan's timeline or Dragon's timeline, like the Zendikar stuff happened exactly the same. So it gets a little wibbly-wobbly <laughs> if you introduce Bolas. Yeah, my instinct would be Karn was able to communicate with people from off-plane. Arzakhan was able to communicate with people off-plane. Bolas might just be off-plane. Who knows? It's my headcanon until he actually shows up on the world, because otherwise I'm not a big fan of that happening. But they've also hand-waved the Sorin moment. 
because he did have a story written for the Khan's timeline when he shows up and Ugin is dead. And But that was like the exact same like five minutes of recent past that gets retold. It's not, there wasn't anything that Soren did past that point that was multiverse changing, whereas Bolas got killed, got resurrected, did all of the Eye of Ugin stuff. So that's, that would be my argument there. Yeah, it's just, I hope they handle it in a way that it doesn't end up creating some confusion there. Wow, it's like this time travel thing came back to bite them in the ass. Who knew? <laughs> yeah, who, who knew that time travel stories would be really confusing? Who knew when you had to put like a five point, five or six point bullet, bullet point. list out <laughs> as to what did and did not happen, you might have shot yourself in the foot. I like the idea of the Fate Reforged No, story. I love the block too. It's just, it, it comes at a cost and there are a lot of narrative costs that went along with all of the Bolas stories, but specifically that block. They were very well aware of the time travel problems because Magic has done time travel stories before. Their solution was to create a closed loop, which is not so closed anymore. Anyway, last question. Were any of the summonses real? Was the Windfolk story coming to them actually from Ugin? Or was it meant to lure them out? That depends. Is this whole thing building up to a meeting with Ugin, or is it building up to some ancillary Tarkir action in Bolas's plans? Hmm. I do like the idea of Bolas intervening directly into the frame story, because then we might get a little more of what he might be planning out of that. A Bond villain monologue. Yeah. Something along those lines. I know the Bond villain monologues get a lot of crap, but they're there for a narrative purpose. You need to explain the evil plot at some point. Somebody's got to do it. I don't want it being spread across 8, 16, 24 stories of Ravnica block when they already have guilds to focus on then. One thing that does occur to me just now, though, as I usually get like these lightning bolts near the end of an episode, why did it take... 1200 years for Ugin to recover from what was essentially a snapped neck. We've seen magic heal in way, way faster time. I mean, not everybody has those healing drops from the Boros. Right, it's it's pretty simple magic in the multiverse to undo something like that. Well, but we have no idea, even Ugin says he has no idea what the hell Sarkin did with the Hedrons. He had to be woken up by Soren, so he didn't come out of that naturally. So what I'm leading to is, might it be that Ugin was supposed to come out of that sooner, and whatever Bolas is doing on that plane is to ensure he remains in stasis forever, except until Soren shows up and happens to know something about Hadron magic? No, because Bolas would have just killed Ugin. Alright, fair enough. Yeah, it's going back to his statement in Enter the Eldrazi Part 3, where he says that he knew where Ugin lay the whole storytelling purpose of spending a block reviving Ugin was knowing that he was going to be some kind of secret that Bolas would not know about in their finale showdown. I don't think him stopping by the plane and keeping Ugin sleeping for longer would exactly be great. So that's about all we have time for today. Let's dive into final thoughts. And I'm gonna be honest with you, Carrie. 
ever since you revealed Doretti on Kaladesh to me 10 days ago, <laughs> my life has never been the same. <laughs> I needs it. I want him to be a blue-red artificer in the Exquisite Inventions deck. And if he is, you guys might never hear from me again because I, I just flat out died. <laughs> or I, I sparked and I'm off plane and I can't find my way back. It's weird that that poster is like three weeks out from the original release date, allegedly. It's for sale publicly and there's just like policy of just no acknowledging it ever. Don't talk about it, I guess. There's no official word on it, is what I'm trying to say. It's not leaked information. It is an official product put out at its appropriate release date. Whether or not someone internally to Wizards of the Coast screwed up by putting that art there, or timelines just shifted that it ended up coming out before they intended, I don't know. That doesn't happen. Never. So, Andrew, your last thoughts. Something we didn't mention when recapping the flashback story. Because there's not really much to say about it, but I thought it was a fascinating detail. Nicol Bolas doesn't know where Ugin went. And he has his sorcerers that he has trained in his empire trying to figure out how to replicate a disintegration spell that can disintegrate stuff just the way Ugin disintegrated. He thinks Ugin is dead at this point. I've talked about pretty much every episode about moments in the Ugin Bolas stories where something happens and Bolas and Ugin have totally different perspectives on it. Ugin's planeswalker spark igniting and him getting whisked away to Tarkir. Obviously that's what's going to happen to Ugin because he has that direct knowledge of other planes but also has that wondrous mind that thinks about things like the nature of reality. Bolas is singularly focused on destruction and dominance. So he sees Ugin disintegrate and thinks, there must be some kind of magic that can just disintegrate dragons. I'm going to put my people on that. And, you know, they use it <laughs> to great success against Vevictus's brood. So that's just one of those cool moments. And I just wonder how Bolas is going to figure out that planeswalking is a thing. Does Ugin come back? You saw his mind blown at there being land across the ocean. Remember? <laughs> like, And Ugin, Ugin dismissed it like, yeah, of course there is. And Bolas is like, I'm going to rule that. And I'm like, cool. That's what you do. It's just this story so good. And there are so many moments. And I'm just waiting for things to get paid off. And we've seen them. We're like, we're five episodes in and we're starting to see stuff get paid off. And ah, it's so good. I'm very excited. All right, Carrie, last thoughts. My last thoughts are Vevictus was part of that little five cousin brood, and he was black, red, green. And so um, I'm going to say Lividus is blue, white, red. Ravis is a colorless token. Um, Rudra is actually just the flip side of that colorless token. That one's just the promo art with the little Magic the Gathering ad. Nobody gets cycles. Nobody's happy. That's the end of it. <laughs> you know now, like, everyone who did not think about that before is going to be asking us which of these brothers is which color in the cycle. Yeah, I'm so over cycles. That's why I really want that Theros Nyx being in Commander 2018 
to be a god and to be just one god in a cycle because we've already upset people by saying that one god without a cycle people who love their cycles are going to get more than their fill of cycles with the three sets on ravnica so yeah ravnica the the black theme is cycles let us have our spiteful fun not liking cycles (laughs) for a bit i should note for all the listeners i was not entirely on board with carrie's anti-cycle screed but it has ended up being so much fun and like ixalan (laughs) had come out and i was like hey this is cool like this asymmetry is cool that i am now i'm now fully on board the anti-cycle train all right. Well, thank you, everybody. Don't forget to support us on Patreon.com/slash/TheVorthosCast. This has been the Vorthos Cast.